Break out your beach towel and occupy your favorite sun lounger. Welcome to Tommy's and Jerry's, the podcast that is to German-British cultural intercourse what Jeremy Clarkson is to the agrarian economy. Each week, we're going to build a bridge of friendship and petty rivalry across the North Sea. A strictly metaphorical bridge, in case the current British Prime Minister is listening and gets any bright ideas. We're going to delve into the issues that have brought the British and German people together, or thrust them apart, throughout history and into the present, from Kaiser Wilhelm's dodgy deck shoes at Cowes, to Michael Gove getting denounced as an opera lad for visiting the Richard Wagner Festival in Bayreuth. I'm Katja Heuer, a German historian living in Britain. And I'm Oliver Moody, a British journalist based in Berlin. And as it happens, I've just come back from a reporting trip to Nuremberg in northern Bavaria, and there... On the outskirts of the city, there's a Shell petrol station with a 24-hour sausage vending machine, the Fleischautomat, or it's sort of meat amat, I suppose you could translate it. You can also buy um, steaks and frikadellen, which are sort of like German meatballs, and you just put your money in and out comes a pack of lightly refrigerated raw meat. It's astounding. Perfect. What more could you ask for? <laughs> well, I suppose if you're ever driving through Franconia in the middle of the night and get ambushed by um, an overpowering hunger for pork products, as you do, you know where to go, <laughs> just as long as you have your barbecue with you. Today we're discussing German and British snacks, their history, their politics, their quality, and the narcissism of small differences between the two nations that seem to agree wholeheartedly on all the basic ingredients, but then they are at loggerheads just on, well, about everything else. So, Ketcher, in the um, interest of comedy between our two nations, what's your favourite national German snack? Kebab. <laughs> it's maybe not the obvious answer, but I love a good Duna kebab, especially as I'm from around Berlin, where they make the best of those. They're so cheap, so tasty, um, and just a great snack as well as a meal. Depends how hungry you are, I suppose. But I always make a point out of actually having one when I go back to Germany. People say to me, "What what food do you miss the most?" and and that's definitely my answer. I've never understood why the Döner kebab or Donner, I guess you'd call it in the UK, is just so unnecessarily terrible on the other side of the North Sea. I always, well, I don't really eat anymore, but the last time I was in the UK, I was coming back from a night out and I thought, oh, I can't really be that bad, can it? And it was, it was every inch of that bad. Yeah, and three times as, ex as expensive. I don't really understand why either. I was really kind of looking forward to, uh, you know, basically having another kebab when I moved over here and, and looked at them and thought, oh, good, they have döner. No, they don't. <laughs> I suppose it's the, because the Turkish community isn't quite as prolific uh, in, in Britain as it is in, in Germany. Having had a lengthy discussion one late night in Berlin with, with, the, with the kebab man, he explained to me that actually they don't have them as they are there in Turkey either. They're like a sort of... Um, adapted version for the German palate. I suppose that's why I like them so much. Um, but those that you get in Berlin are definitely the best. I've never, ever had a kebab that nice and that cheap anywhere else, really. I feel that the um, implication of that is that the version that we have in Britain is also an adapted version for the British palate, which probably says pretty slanderous things about the British palate or at least what people think about it. Ooh. But don't you think it's to do with the fact that in Britain it's very much a nighttime snack and people just stop caring at about two o'clock in the you know at night whilst in Germany people will actually have them for you know lunch or or as a snack or you know supper. 
Well, that's a great vote of confidence in British culture to start us off on. <laughs> the, um, the thing I really miss from my homeland, funnily enough, is the Welsh cake. Um, and for the uninitiated, perhaps for some German listeners, it's a bit like a scone, um, but it's flat and it's it's a bit doughier and it's got a bit more spice in it. And it's sort of lightly encrusted with um, crystal sugar. And um, I've been scouring the internet for Welsh cake trivia to lighten this podcast with. And I found literally nothing, They're just Welsh cakes. Perhaps some of our listeners have got good Welsh cake facts, but I couldn't find any at all. I just love the fact that you call a, a, a scone a scone and I say scone. <laughs> it shouldn't be the other way around. <laughs> Why do you say scone? Surely you've been brought up on good, proper BBC broadcasts that teach you how to pronounce things yeah, the right way. It's, it's, yeah, exactly. Um, and I, I sort of distinctly remember all of the all of the pronunciations on the old cassettes where, where they go, listen and repeat to be very prim and proper. And I'm pretty sure they said scone on it. <laughs> I also definitely <laughs> go with, with the Queen's version of, of doing it the right way around. You definitely have to have the cream first and then the jam on top but maybe i suppose that goes with my german mind as well because i just think the viscosity of the cream is so, is such that it has to go underneath you cannot possibly put the jam first and then the cream on top without making an absolute mess and that is why germany is the greatest manufacturing nation in europe i think it's also logically consistent because you put this it's, a, it's analogous to butter right you sort of put the dairy product on first and then the jam comes that makes I see, I, I see you have been sufficiently uh, Germanized <laughs> in your time in Berlin. <laughs> <laughs> well, this episode is turning out to be a bit of a minefield because I've always thought of myself as a, a pretty fair-minded person who's ready to see the best in Germany and acknowledge when the German, Germans do, in fact, do things better. But it turns out there are some subjects where you just you take the boy out of Little England, but you can't take the Little Englander out of the boy. And I've discovered, to my surprise, I'm a bit of a snack nationalist. What what's the biggest thing that you would say Britain does better than Germany in terms of snacking? The triangle sandwich. Ooh. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I'll have to go with that. For starters, it just isn't really a thing in Germany, um, and certainly not in the vari variety that you can get them here. Well, Jean Antoine Briard Savarin, the founder of modern food writing, famously observed in the 19th century, tell me what you eat and I will tell you what you are. So, Katja, what do German snacks tell us about who the Germans are? Well, it's interesting that there is a huge variety of meat-based snacks in uh, Germany and perhaps that says something about the wider you know, sausage consumption that even snacks have to be meat you know, people eat a lot of meat in Germany in any case for their main meals, but then even in between, they have to have more pork. Um, and, and to give you an extreme example, when German children are uh, introduced into their first uh, year at school, they get a thing called a Zuckertüte, which is like a great big paper cone. Um, and that's normally stuffed with sweets um, and stationery and other things that, that little children like. When my sister um, started her first school year, she, she was in, in many ways, you know, sort of a typical German child or some, you know, some German children are like that, certainly. And, and she preferred having savoury snacks to, to sweets. And so they stuffed her whole Zuckertüte when, when she was a little girl about off to go to school with uh, beefies like the, the pepperami equivalent, more popular in, in Germany, is the, is the beefy. Um, and so this little girl, you know, with her pigtails and everything, went off with her giant cone uh, full of 
pork products, salami and, and all of that sort of stuff, which I think says a lot about <laughs> Germany as a nation. You know, you kind of get raised and and uh, yeah, raised on, on meat products, really. This That's very sweet, but also what a way to send a small girl into her first sort of serious <laughs> social experience. <laughs> yeah, she and, fit um, right in, though. <laughs> <laughs> Having spent the first few years of your life in uh, former East Germany, where tropical fruit was not exactly always plentiful, do you eat a lot of bananas? <laughs> Ooh, uh, yeah, I do like my bananas now uh, that I can actually have them. Uh, it reminds me of a little episode actually when when the Berlin Wall uh, fell, and like all. East Germans, we were sort of as a family curious to see what, what was to be had on the other side of the wall. Uh, we went over there with our 100 marks that we'd been given that everyone got as a sort of welcome present. Um, and West German, West Berlin in particular, uh, vendors had, you know, kind of geared up really for, for that event when, when East Germans were coming over and they were giving you all sorts of interesting, you know, and exotic products that you'd never seen before, like the proverbial banana or not so proverbial banana, real life banana. Um, and I was offered um, uh, something by a, by a vendor as well. And I, you know, it, it, I just looked at him basically and, and wanted to know what it was. And he held me this uh, little brown thing, um, which turned out to be a kiwi. And I just looked at him and went, why would I want that? We've got potatoes where I come from. <laughs> <laughs> it, just, it just looked like this, uh, you know, potato to me ordinarily because I'd never seen a kiwi in my life. So I guess even fruit snacking depends a little bit on, you know, where you're where you're from. Are there any particularly yeah. typical sort of British uh, snacking habits that that you think are specific to to Britain? Well, I I probably have an annoying journalistic tendency to overinterpret these things but i think you can tell quite a lot about british people from the way that they snack for starters this um obsession with doing things efficiently and quickly the aldesco lunch the chopped salad the triangle sandwich the kind of thing that you can just hoof down hoover down at your desk without making too much mess while you bash out a report on carpet sales in the southwest but i also think um in Britain, snacks tend to be very freighted with sort of class significance. There's also, I think, a bit of a bent towards neophilia, a real kind of hunger for novelty. Um, having seen on my last trip back to the UK that M&S have launched a line of uh, winterberry and Prosecco flavoured crisps. Of course they are. And I think <laughs> sometimes that um, lust for novelty can shade into what might be considered cultural appropriation because M&S got into trouble a couple of years ago for um, launching a vegan biryani wrap with sweet potato, which a lot of Indian cooks were inclined to regard as a sacrilege. And I get the sense that that really isn't such a, a sensitive area in Germany. There was a row recently about um, cigoyners also, a sort of gypsy sauce. But um, in my local off-license in Berlin, you can still buy, um, and I quote, oriental flavoured crisps. <laughs> Yeah, there's. I don't think Germans have that many qualms about uh, cultural appropriation when it when it comes to food. Really, I get the feeling it's actually quite the opposite in Germany. Germans like you know what they know and and carry on eating virtually the same thing sometimes over over generations, and nobody's all that all that bothered about it. Really, there's certainly not. I don't think any uh, 
deliberate sort of hunger for anything new. People think it's exotic when Lidl or Aldi have like a Chinese week on or something and, and, you can, and you can get different sources from what you normally have. Most Germans tend to buy those and then put them in their in their larder somewhere and, and never actually use them and they're just there in case they you know they feel a bit exotic one day and, and might use some um, spices that they don't normally use. So there's certainly it's almost the opposite I would say in uh, Germany. Have you encountered uh, Abendbrot yet as a tradition? Yeah, you, you haven't fessed up to this yet, but um, you're going to have to admit that Germans do eat snacks for supper. Uh, no, I mean, they, I thought no, Abendbrot <laughs> evening bread was, was like a just a manner of speaking, but it turns out to be a thing. It very much is a thing. Everyone has it for uh, supper, basically, which is actually quite um, handy because you don't have to cook anything. So basically, for those of you who haven't tried this yet, it's it's like a little continental feast every evening. So you have your different types of bread all readily and freshly sliced and some salami and other cold meat products and some cheese normally and salads and things. And it's just all on the table. And then everyone just basically eats eats what they what they want, and then you put the rest back in the fridge to get it back out the the next day, which I think prevents a lot of people actually from uh, you know having takeaways on on mass like people do in the UK because you you can come home quite late you know and be in a hurry, but because you haven't actually got to cook anything, you just get it out of the fridge and and put it on there. It sort of stops that you know being too lazy to cook in the evening because you don't really have to. You say takeaways en masse and lazy as though they're bad things. <laughs> I've just been reading um, an article in Stern magazine, according to which the bread for your Abendbrot should ideally be eight millimeters thick and served between the hours of five and seven p.m., which is just absolutely extraordinary to me. Well, and apparently, that sounds it's, um, about right. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness! And apparently, the origins are something to do with um, the introduction of warm meals in factory canteens in the nineteenth century, which meant that workers had already had a hot dinner and um, didn't necessarily need to have another one when they got home from work. Yeah, I think that sounds about right because Germans are a little bit obsessed with the idea of having at least one hot meal a day, um, which has always been a thing. You know, one of those, you, you've got to do this to lead a you know healthy life. And factory owners in the 19th century had this, some of them anyway, had this tendency towards sort of paternalism, at least pretend that they're looking after their workers whilst they're, you know, making them work for 16 hours a day. Um, and one of those things was to have uh, canteens installed in, in factories. And it's still very much a thing actually now in, in German companies that, you know, you say about Aldesco uh, sort of eating in, in Britain and Germany, the thing tends to be even for smaller companies, actually, to have canteens um, in the in the company themselves or in the in where your office is. Um, and that's always been a tradition. And then people sort of feel they've had their one hot meal a day and, and they can have a, a sort of cold meal in the evening. And, you know, you were saying about specific sort of millimeters in terms of bread width. Um, that's not even a joke. Pretty much every German family has got a bread cutter at home an electric one which you know like normally in the uk you have at, at bakers um stores but people have those actually at home as one of their kitchen appliances and people are extremely particular about how wide that you know the, the sort of degree on it is in terms of how wide their their slices of bread are going to be um and if you change if you walk into somebody's house and you change it people tend to get very upset with it so i'm, I'm not surprised you say that that featured in an article as well it's certainly something that, your, I'd, that i'd recognize what's your millimeter caliber then i have no idea to be honest mine was always on a seven 
out of 12, I think they were. <laughs> I still had my my old East German one until I moved away from Germany in the um, sort of mid, mid-2000s. So um, I don't know exactly. They, they didn't have the millimeters on it. They just had a little scale, um, which I think was from 1 to 12. And I was, on, yeah, round about there. And um, <laughs> while we're still in the preliminary skirmishes and things haven't got too vicious yet, <laughs> I should say that um, one of the things... I think I have noticed about Germany and I think is really good here is that the regional snack culture seems to be a lot stronger. People get very excited, particularly about their um, their ingredients, you know, your, your asparagus from Beelitz or your um, pickled cucumbers from the Spreewald. It, it does seem to be that there's there's a lot more stuff that you can't get outside particular regions and that there's a huge amount of local pride in this kind of thing. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And, and in addition to that regional um, variety, you also have an east-west things still going on so for example in the east a, a thing called torta orma was always a thing dead grandma um which is basically blood sausage so imagine haggis uh warm haggis um with usually just served with potatoes or with um mashed potatoes sometimes and it's called dead uh, grandma because that's you know children used to joke that's what it looked like um it's delicious it just looks a bit um strange uh, but yeah, there are also other things like, for instance, the, the Jäger Schnitzel, that's the Panthers Schnitzel. Um, if you order that in West Germany, you will get um, a breaded piece of steak, veal, if you want to be really fancy, um, with usually chips on the side and, and some form of, of veg or salad. If you And, and on top, you've, get, you've got um, mushrooms in, in like a creamy sauce. So that's, that's what makes it the Jäger Schnitzel. Um, and then in the east, if you order the same thing, you also get breaded meat, but it's sausage meat, like sort of processed meat in the middle. Um, and then instead of having your fries on the side, you get um, tomato, or sorry, pasta and tomato sauce on the side. So it seems a bit weird, but it actually works. I like both of the Jägerschnitzels, east and west. Um, but it's interesting that the very same thing, you know, in the course of the of the 40 years of the existence of the GDR uh, has kind of diverged and become two separate uh, meals almost yeah I, w- I would say on the british side of things a lot of the snacks that started or foodstuffs that started out as regional phenomena got a bit nationalized the the cornish pasty is now found pretty much across england um the pork pie starts out in lincolnshire but that's now very much a, a kind of britain-wide thing even the, the yorkshire pudding uh it, it, you would find people who take a lot of pride in that pretty much anywhere in england I think. And there are a few that haven't, though. Um, the deep fried Mars bar, for some reason, has yet to penetrate far beyond Glasgow. <laughs> I wonder and, why um, that is. <laughs> and the um, the Parmo, the, the Teesside Parmesan, which is um, a sort of Middlesbrough speciality, uh, is breaded pork or chicken with bechamel sauce and cheddar baits over the top. And um, it's actually quite nice. That sounds delicious. I'd try that. <laughs> now for a judiciously timed word from our sponsors. Welcome back to Tommy's and Jerry's, the Anglo-German podcast where we find ourselves in the midst of the Wurstkäse scenario. I'm so sorry, Katja. I really have to take full responsibility for writing that pun and making you read it out. It sounded a lot better in my head. It won't happen again. <laughs> I'm afraid some things just can't be forgiven. For starters, this tasteless and textualist, not quite toast thing that your compatriots insist of referring to as 
bread. Oh, come on. I take a, a bit of a Whiggish view of these things. And I, I see the, um, the history of bread as a kind of grand progressive evolutionary sweep leading up to the discovery of granary bread. And that's the sort of end of bread history. And there's just, just no reason to, um, to go beyond it. And I, I really don't understand why German bakeries persist in not, in not producing it. Yeah, but they're all just degrees of fluffiness and whiteness and sponginess. I mean, there's nothing solid about it. You're hungry again after about half an hour after you've had a slice of it. It's, it's just not substantial enough. Yeah, you see, when I eat a lot of the German breadstuffs, I just feel almost like I'm in some sort of 19th century sanatorium on a cure. <laughs> and whatever's happening is, is happening for my benefit. And I acknowledge that. But it's also a little bit austere. And um, I'm a bit too conscious of how healthful it is. How about the bakery in general, though? I, I just I just can't get away from the fact that you can walk into any German bakery and indeed there they are you know quite there there are a lot of them you can literally it's, it's attached to supermarkets you can walk down in your high street there's going to be one a genuine actual real life bakery not not just a, a shelf in in a supermarket and you can get all sorts of nice cakes in it and, and everything and it's all fresh and, and nicely baked surely surely that's an advancement in your in your culinary life maybe there's a lovely story about um when David Bowie lived in Berlin on my street actually um in the in the um late 70s and um he went into a bakery with Iggy Pop and he asked if he could have some bread in his really atrocious german and um the woman behind the counter said yes of course what do you want do you want um roggenbrötchen or do you want meerkörner or do you want laugenbrezel and he's, his eyes glazed over and he just said i just wanted to buy some bread i didn't want to buy the whole shop <laughs> Yeah, I can't empathize with that because every German has got, you know, your specific, like, you know, specific bread that you like and that you want. And, and Germans freak out when they go abroad as well. Like when, when uh, my family come to visit me here in Britain, they always say, is there anywhere we can get decent bread? And I go, maybe if we go to a really large supermarket, we might find you something that is a shade darker than, you know, your, your average, your granary bread, Oliver. But um, yeah. That, that's the thing that really people come back home uh, to Germany after a holiday and, and that's the thing that they will go, oh, finally I can have some, some bread again. Bearing in mind what we were saying about Abendbord, people literally have this every day as well. Um, and it's a staple that, you know, people sort of get used to and, and want to, to have in their lives, I suppose. But whilst we're here, um, in future episodes, we'd very much like to talk about your questions and comments or even corrections. So do please get in touch with us uh, over Twitter. Our handle is at Tommy's Jerry's. We'll post the subject of each week's episode a few days in advance so that you can get your questions in early. I think we ought to talk a little bit about Greg's. Um, have you have you been to Greg's? Yeah, I have. The I have actually before I even encountered it, somebody was trying to explain to me um, what it was, and they were very very derogatory about it. They said basically Greg's is is a place uh, where they serve crap to scum, which I thought was incredibly oh rude. <laughs> and I'm not even sure I'm allowed to say that on this family friendly podcast. Of course, I had to then go and, and try this out because I didn't think it was going to be that bad if you got it on every high street. And I have to say, I don't think it is that bad. You can actually get half decent kind of snacks, I, I felt. I, I sort of think that um, Greg's is an integral part of the British snack story. 
um, because it was it was founded um, in Gosforth on Tyneside in, in 1939 and um, just went on this um, enormous national campaign of expansion and now it has more branches across Britain than Starbucks or McDonald's. And the interesting thing about it for me is is first, having talked about the way that food is phrased with class, I would say one of the things that underpins Greg's success has been this sense that it's essentially classless. And um, a few years ago, a branch opened up in Westminster Tube Station just across from the Houses of Parliament. And it was attended by um, all of the lobby journalists. In fact, um, my colleague from the Times Diary um, cut the ribbon and, and told the, the awaiting reporters that dreams can come true. And I think one of the things that's going on there is, is almost a kind of performative snacking in the sense that it's a way for middle class people to demonstrate how sort of down to earth they are. It's almost like a kind of class laundry. Um, but the other fascinating thing about Greg's is one of the reasons it's so successful is that the son of the founder, Ian Gregg, um, went to Cambridge. And um, while he was there, he came across the work of the Italian economist, Vilfredo Pareto, who's, who's well known for Pareto curves. And his theory, um, based on his observation that in early 20th century Italy, 20% of the people owned 80% of the land, um, you can basically achieve 80% of the effect with only 20% of the effort. And so he, he took from this that you could just put tiny little ovens at the backs of the shops and have the whole theatre of baking and actually do most of the real work off site. And so people would feel like they were in a bakery, whereas in fact they were basically in a shop. And it's kind of fascinating that there's this sort of um, hyper-capitalist fine-tuned engine hiding behind what looks like a very sort of wholesome and, and um, nice business. Yeah, absolutely. And totally um, ahead of his, his time with that as well. When you think where, where snacking has gone since that, that's exactly what's what's happened, isn't it? How do you feel about chocolate? That's always, that seems to be one of those things that I find myself permanently arguing with British people about. A lot of the, the friends and, and people that I know here seem to feel that Britain is somehow the chocolate capital of the world. <laughs> and I distinctly remember when my, my very, very first trip to Britain was when I was in um, at, in secondary school and we did an exchange uh, trip to Britain. Um, and one of the things that the teacher said you could bring as a nice present for the host was chocolate. <laughs> and my teacher said they have no nice chocolate in Britain. If you bring them an, a nice bar of milk or, or some Swiss chocolate, they'll be delighted. So that's what I did. And they were delighted. I don't know whether that's because they, um, you know, they were just being nice um, or whether that is actually a thing. How do you, how do you feel about that issue? A bit torn, because uh, on the one hand, I, I fully acknowledge the artistry of uh, Swiss, Austrian, German chocolatiers and I think Lindt is just about superior to pretty much any chocolate you can buy in the sort of average chocolate section of a British supermarket but on the other hand I do think Britain deserves its title as the chocolate capital of the world on historical grounds um, because uh, we invented it basically um, the uh, chocolate bar in its modern form was invented in my hometown Bristol by uh, J.S. Fry and Sons in 1847 and since then um, the chocolate bar kind of got adopted by um, Quaker businesses having previously been a sort of slightly morally seedy product as a kind of um, clean alternative to um, alcohol as a form, form of moral capitalism 
And since then, Britain's just had this amazing track record of churning out slightly average tasting, but absolutely ubiquitous chocolate brands. Um, the Mars Bar was invented in Slough. Um, the Flake, the Snickers, the Twix, the Kit Kat, you can find them probably in Kabul or um, pretty much anywhere you go in the world. <laughs> Yeah, I have to say my my favorite is fairly mainstream as well. Perhaps a little bit too mainstream to be to be mentioned here in public. I love Kinder chocolate, all of them, uh, the different varieties. Um, and it seems I'm not alone. Um, it is still the second largest chocolate brand in the world, um, created in in 1968, and since then it's really gone from from strength to strength. Starting off obviously with the classic bar with the little boy on it. And it, that's a funny one as well, actually. People feel so strongly about that boy on the front packet of the Kinder Bars that when they try to change it um, and just modernize the, the child, really, um, there was so much resistance that they tried various different things from airbrushing to changing the child back um, that, you know, you can just see how, how this is really part of people's, you know, culture, people's childhood. They don't want these things to, to change. Unfortunately, though, Kinder chocolate isn't German. <laughs> Um, so I feel I'm cheating a bit here by making a big thing out of it. It was created by Michel uh, Ferrero in Alba in Italy, um, but they did it with the German market in mind. And so they gave it that German sounding name, of course, Kinder, meaning meaning children, um, because that was always going to be their main uh, market for it, given the, the, the size of the you know German economy. And, and they knew that Germans like their chocolate and, and they could sell it there. But it has since been... Um, a, a worldwide success um, and, and been spread as well, as I say, unfortunately not German though. Um, we haven't really touched much on cheese so far that as a, as a snack. How do you feel about, about British cheese? That always seems to be one of those controversial things that people have various different opinions on. This is actually one piece of terrain that I'm prepared to die on because I, uh, as well, Boris Johnson's very fond of, um, saying that Britain now has more cheese varieties than France, which I think is probably true. It's quite possible. Um, but um, the variety is also pretty good. You go from, you know, carefully to Stilton to Yarg. You've got, unlike in Germany, I think a genuine cheese diversity and a lot of, a lot of very good stuff. And I don't understand why when I find myself in German supermarkets, I I'm confronted with 35 different varieties of essentially the same square cheese slice. Yeah, that's I totally agree with that. I lived my entire early life in the absolute dead certain belief that I did not like cheese. So I would, you know, it's one of those where people say, is there anything you don't eat? My, my hand would always be up. Yeah, I don't like cheese. Because that rubbery, as you say, square-shaped stuff that they uh, sell as cheese in Germany is, is just completely tasteless and not particularly nice. I mean, people do eat cheese but it's largely a, a middle class thing where you'd have like a whole cheese board and you know of imported cheeses largely um but it certainly isn't as widespread as it is in britain and then when i moved over here um i tried cheese again and discovered that cheddar is delicious in all its forms and varieties and absolutely love it now i would, I would never now say that I, i'm not a cheese eater um so i'm i've been converted strangely enough by by british cheese rather than french cheese um so I, i'd totally go with that that's definitely one field where i would agree that um british cheese is superior They'll never let you back into Germany now. <laughs> I know they chucked me out in the first place. So <laughs> I think that ship has sailed a long time ago. <laughs> the, 
Um, all right then. So, what are the most atrocious, appalling, offensive snacks that you've encountered in Britain? Uh, jelly deal, I think, would be the most horrific one. I've actually had to seek it out because it doesn't seem to be as widespread as I first believed. I, I came across it um, for the first time when I, I lived in Singapore for for a little while, and there a Brit told me that the main thing that he missed about Britain was jelly deal. So he had to explain to me what it actually was. And I thought, that's absolutely disgusting. Who eats that? Um, and so <laughs> once I'd actually moved to Britain, I went on a little hunt and, and found that it does exist, but it seems to be quite a rare beast, presumably exactly for that reason. It's, it's an acquired taste, isn't it? Have you ever eaten it? I haven't and I wouldn't. Um, but that's <laughs> that's largely to do with the fact that I don't like anything that lives in the sea, really. That's nothing to do with being German or not German. In fact, I'm quite atypical. Most Germans love fish, um, but I've never liked it. And so eel, I think, would be quite far down that list if I ever try fish again. <laughs> I think that that would not be <laughs> not be top of the pile. And certainly not as when far it's as in I'm... jelly. <laughs> <laughs> when I um, lived in London, I only ever came across one um, Jelly Deal shop, um, and that was on Broadway Market, which is slap bang in the middle of the sort of hipster crisis zone of East London. Um, and um, it sort of has to share space with all of these um, extremely expensive farmers markets selling sort of really uh hipsterized produce and i just think it probably survives on passing trade from all of these young people in beards who think it's some sort of um, zany startup rather than something that's been there all along yeah or perhaps tourists like myself at the time looking for for apparently what is a very quintessential british snack when it it clearly isn't Speaking of quintessential uh, snacks, though, I, I did have to laugh the other day uh, when I read a story about uh, Gerhard Schröder's antics about the German snack, the, the currywurst, um, which really did make me laugh. Um, so basically, the, the currywurst, for those of you who are uh, uninitiated with that, is a uh, fried or uh, grilled sausage, which then gets chopped into uh, pieces. And then you have a sort of ketchup-y type sauce on top and then curry powder gets sprinkled on top of that. It's an absolute classic of British, uh, sorry, German uh, snack culture. And it, it's, it may sound a bit weird, but it actually works. I don't know, Oliver, do you like currywurst? Have you tried it? Um, I do. I do really like it, actually, especially when you make it at home and make your own currywurst sauce. Because sometimes it's just ketchup with curry on it, which... Um, I think is 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 uh, is not not showing it to its best advantage. <laughs> no, um, but yeah, so it's it's always been a, a snack, particularly in working class areas. It's very much at home in Berlin and also in the rural region. There's in fact a battle about which of the two actually invented it. Of course, Berlin is the correct answer. Um, but Gerhard Schröder's recent um, uh, sort of commentary on this was based on the fact that the Volkswagen uh, factory. Um, which had always served its own currywurst um, and still produces its own currywurst, has suddenly decided to make one of its canteens for its workers uh, vegetarian. And so that brought the old um, ex-chancellor back out. That's also his stomping ground politically. Um, so he looked at that and said, um, if he was still on the on the board of Volkswagen, which he used to be, that wouldn't have happened and it's outrageous. And, and the currywurst is as much part of you know, working culture as it is part of, of Volkswagen. When um, Hitler put that factory there, uh, Wolfsburg, where it is now, was actually not a 
not a city it wasn't a place they had to basically make the whole place from scratch and so they added like farmland and and butcheries and bakeries and all sorts of other infrastructure to it and so Volkswagen for a long time has got this tradition of of making producing and serving its own food to its workers and the Volkswagen currywurst is indeed an, an item um, but it is only one canteen luckily so I don't think the the Volkswagen currywurst is dying out just yet. I love two things about that story. And the first was that Schroeder had um, kind of kept his powder dry and maintained his silence throughout all of these political crises. And then just before the general election, the first sort of moment when Germany gets to pick a new direction after 16 years of Angela Merkel, he breaks his silence and that's the thing he chose to break it on. <laughs> and the second thing was when um, he described the currywurst as the, the protein bar of the factory worker. And I just thought that was such a piece of misplaced poetry. <laughs> yeah, but spot on, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. Uh, do, do you think snacks get politicized like that in, in Britain as well? Or Massively. are snacks just snacks? Yeah, I think there's a, a political science PhD thesis waiting to be written on the role of meat-based snacks in the 2015 British general election. Um, because initially you had um, the conservative led government um, imposing VAT on hot snacks, including the Cornish pasty, got very quickly labelled the pasty tax. And the Chancellor, George Osborne, was described in The Sun at the time as the Marie Antoinette of the 21st century. <laughs> and um, David Cameron um, sort of had to trot out that he'd eaten a, um, a pasty from the West Cornwall Cornish past, West Cornish Pasty Company at Leeds Railway Station. He said, very good it was too, but it turned out the... Um, the branch had actually closed two years earlier and he'd been lying through his teeth. And so this, this escalated and became um, one of Britain's periodic fits of political reporting madness. And um, so the Labour leader um, rushed to a branch of Greggs near Birmingham, again, going back to the sort of role of Greggs as a place of performative snacking and had himself photographed eating a sausage roll. But it came back to haunt him. I think snacks are a bit of a treacherous political mistress because two years later, Ed Miliband was himself... A uh, photograph trying to um, eat a bacon sandwich in Covent Garden Market and um, looking like he was a man eating a praying mantis wrapped in whale fat. <laughs> so I think the um, the moral of the story is don't 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 get involved with um, snacks if you're running an election campaign. <laughs> and on that note, I think it's about time that we retreated to our to nurse our injured national pride and seek some solace in the soothing embrace of a Streuselkuchen. I think she means apple crumble. I do not. <laughs> but we've done enough damage to British-German relations for one week, so let's draw a line here under the subject and spare our listeners any more grief. As always, you can follow us on Twitter, at Tommy's Jerry's, and we would really like to hear any feedback that you might have, including questions, corrections, and suggestions on anything that we've said today. For now, bis nächste Woche, and goodbye from Sussex. And bis bald from Berlin. Goodbye. <laughs>